0: Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're talking to Kaylin Baban, MD, MPH, the Inaugural Chief Wellness Officer for GW Hospital, GW Medical Faculty Associates, and the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. An assistant professor of medicine here at GW, Dr. Babon leads the G-Well Center for
1: Healthcare Professionals. She's also the director of the Lifestyle Medicine Program at GW Medical Faculty Associates.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Babon. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, we're glad to have you as well. Um, We know a lot about all the wonderful things that you're doing, but our listeners don't. Um, So we're hoping you can help fill them in, um, starting with what is the G-Well Center for Healthcare Professionals? Okay,
2: Uh, so as you've described, uh, the G.U.L. Center for Healthcare Professionals is a reasonably new uh, institution or office here at GW, Uh, and what it is really is the office through which we're organizing all of our wellness initiatives for our medical enterprise, so that's for our School of Medicine and Health Sciences, for the hospital, for our medical faculty practice. Uh, And to that end, what we're really looking to do is to have some kind of an organized framework an organized umbrella through which we can make sure that we are aware of all the resources that are available and making all the members of our community available of those resources, Uh, Mm -hmm. excuse me, aware of those resources. We want to make sure that we are identifying where there are needs that are not yet met uh, and providing a framework to create those. Uh, And also that we have the chance to really bring together some folks who are all across the institution who are doing really terrific work in these areas that may not otherwise know one another so that we can develop the best uh, wellness initiatives and kind of tie this community around this that we can.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, that's a a really good point. I think we hear that a lot in academia, that people are doing great things across the university, and then it doesn't seem to interconnect. Uh, We work in our silos. So I think that's, for me, one of the important things about what you're doing as well is, is bringing what's already being done together, but then you're also adding all these new elements as well.
2: I, I think it is an incredibly important area, and and as you say, Lee, it's, it is very common for us to end up seeing that there are people doing fantastic work that may relate beautifully and maybe in a really complementary way to work that someone else is doing in another corner of the institution, and they may not be aware of it. Uh, so one of the things that I was very conscious of when stepping into this role was that we already have a lot of people who are doing fabulous things in wellness at GW. Uh, it was really a question of being able to provide a home and a structure for that work so that those people could find each other and we could work together in a collaborative way that really would be uh, intentional rather than kind of isolated one-offs.
1: Excellent. Um, So one of the elements that you've brought together is the Wellness Advisory Board. What is it and what role is it playing in the center? So I am very grateful that we have had some really terrific folks come and
2: volunteer their time to be part of our wellness advisory board. So this is a group that meets on a bi-monthly basis. Um, I am very pleased to have you, Dr. Frame, as one of the members of the wellness advisory board. And um, these are individuals from across the institution. So across um, members of the hospital, of the faculty, uh, medical faculty associates, and of the School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Uh, So we have representation from all three of those member organizations. And we have representation from all of the various levels of those organizations Uh, so the populations that we have a mandate at the GOL Center to represent are really all of the members of this community so these are our graduate medical and health sciences students our residents and postdoctoral fellows our undergraduate medical students faculty advanced care practitioners uh, nurses and other clinical staff um, non-clinical staff, and our alumni. So we are really seeking to reach all of the members of this community, which makes us unique in my experience uh, and to my knowledge among academic medical centers in the United States. Um, most of the wellness programs and most of the CWOs who I know uh, at other academic medical centers, their work is really focused specifically on providers and providers and training. Mm-hmm. Um and we can we can speak about that a little bit more and why I think it's I think it's really incredibly important in, in any feature of the program that we have here, uh, that we
1: have taken a much more inclusive approach uh, to defining the community that we're serving. So one of the important aspects for me that you're doing with the center is creating a culture of wellness and taking this more holistic approach, like you're saying, including everyone rather than simply healthcare providers and providers and training. Um, but that's a big task. How do you go about creating a culture of wellness? Yes, it is a big task. Um, and
2: I think it is really foundational to any further work that we that we do that needs to build on this. Uh, so creating a culture of wellness uh, is something that I think really does begin with this question of who are we? Who are we including as members of that culture? Um, the reason that I think it is so critically important that we have broadly defined our population uh, as broadly as possible, uh, it, it really gets to this question. Uh, so we can imagine in a program where our initiatives were really focused just on a subset of our population. Uh, you can imagine that that would mean that there would be resources available for that population and maybe there would be a conversation taking place in an ideal world amongst members of that population in a positive way surrounding supporting wellness. Uh, However, if it's really just a subset of our community, what that ends up meaning is that, that the concepts of wellness, those resources, they don't end up permeating. And we are still going to have members of our community who are not getting the support and resources and dialogue around wellness that they need and deserve. Um, that feels to me like a constant uphill battle where you're really setting a limit to what, how far wellness can permeate into your community. Uh, and that, that seems to really limit what we're able to accomplish. Uh, we are interacting all day long, those of us who are providers, uh, with individuals who are not providers, who are still playing a really important role in this organization. Uh, we have consciously called the G. Center, the Center for Healthcare Professionals, um, not with the idea of being exclusionary, but with the idea that this is a healthcare organization and everyone who works here, regardless of what role they are in, whether they are, you Know, the chief of a clinical division, uh, whether they are front desk staff, whether they are working in the billing department, um, whether they are organizing student electives, um, every one of these individuals has a role that is critical to supporting this organization's mission. Uh, and therefore, we are defining healthcare professionals broadly, and, and we are opening our community um, to, and our community initiatives to be as wide as possible so that we really can start to affect culture throughout the organization in a real way, rather than keeping that limited to one corner. So to that end, uh, to really build this culture of wellness at GW, uh, the members of the wellness advisory board have developed a a set of goals uh, that are part of our mission. And so we want to embrace and promote a broad concept of wellness and recognizing that as a foundation of really high-quality self-care and of professional excellence. Uh, I think this is really important. We can come back to that. Uh, We want to, as I've mentioned previously, um, make sure that we are working on providing resources where necessary. Uh, Those resources would be uh, in part to support the development of skills um, and the socialization of resources so that everyone is aware of what the available resources are and how they can take advantage of them to really most effectively pursue their own personal and professional wellness. Uh, And we want to be able to provide leadership. Uh, We recognize that when we're speaking about wellness, particularly in the setting of a healthcare environment, that there are important steps that individuals can take um, and that some individual responsibility here is really important regardless of the setting, but that we are working in a particularly high-stress environment in some ways that are what's sometimes called necessary stress that it's going to be hard for us to avoid uh, just by virtue of the nature of the types of work that we're doing. Um, but in some ways things that perhaps we can mitigate uh, with some appropriate leadership. And so those are the roles that we're trying to that we're trying to meet and that we have set as our mission. Um, And so the ways in which we're doing that, you can imagine, sort of flow from that idea of mission. Um, Some of the initiatives that we're working on now that I'm really excited about have had to do with kind of building on our early work of just evaluating what resources are out there and available and bringing those together, but now starting to fill in some of the gaps. So we had identified that having a structured course uh, for provider self-care was a really important need that was not being addressed yet in a really, um, in a kind of structured manner that would allow access to all members of our community. So we did launch a provider self-care course this fall um, with your support, Lee, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, and that uh, course was extremely well-received and has served now as a pilot in what we're hoping to develop further into a course that will be available not just to all of our graduate students across the community, um, but also really to all members of our community uh, and perhaps be able to expand a little bit more broadly outside GW in the future. But we want to make sure that we're starting with with our folks to make sure that everyone knows that they have access to this resource and can feel supported in a way that we have uh, received feedback has been really meaningful and helpful for the individuals who did partake in the course this fall.
1: That's right. One of my students actually, um, the following term went through a a difficult period in her life. Um, her father had some serious illnesses and she actually wrote to me saying that she utilized what she learned in this course and that it, she knows it made a difference in her ability to handle going through this tough time while balancing work and, um, her graduate work and her, the rest of her family.
2: So that, that means so much to hear that. And, uh, it's, we hope that we will all, that everyone will be able to avoid these kinds of life experiences as much as possible. But we know that this is just something that happens in life that we will often end up running into in of tough times. And knowing that we have the resources and experience and tools uh, available to use that we don't need to just figure things out on the fly Uh I think really can make a huge difference and it's it's terrific to hear that we were able to um that we were able to
0: help support her.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Already making a difference.
0: Was was that part of the wrap program or wrap plan or have you launched that already? I'm not sure.
2: Uh-huh, great. Thank you for asking. <laughs> So, um, so you're, I think you're referring to um, our wellness and resilience action plan that we refer to as our RAP. Um, so, the RAP is uh, is a worksheet actually that uh, I had developed several years ago that we've been using as part of our core curriculum in the medical school for for several years now, um, in which we ask uh, our students at that time to really take. Stock of where they are across seven different spheres of wellness, uh, and this is a slight adaptation from the uh, SAMHSA model of eight dimensions of wellness. Um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration um, they've developed this model that's very broad concept, really broadly defines wellness, and um, and actually takes an approach that. Um, dovetails with uh, one of my areas of specialty, which is lifestyle medicine, uh, to really be very holistic in the way that we're thinking about wellness. So not just physical health, emotional health, um, but also spiritual health, social social health, social wellness. Uh, so what's what does the uh, individual's social network look like? Uh, financial wellness. Uh, intellectual and occupational, which at GW we've collapsed into one but can certainly be separated out, as SAMHSA has done, um, <clears throat> and environmental. Uh, so the WRAP sheet, <laughs> the Wellness and Resilience Action Plan, um, we've asked first students in the School of Medicine uh, to complete this form and really take stock of what their priorities are in each of those dimensions of wellness where they believe they are now in relation to where they would ideally like to be or in relation to that that priority. Um, And to then assess um, where they think it is reasonable and abbreviating this process a little bit, but after taking stock in that way, to then assess where they think it would be most appropriate and realistic for them to be setting one very specific SMART goal uh, for the coming academic year. Uh, with the idea of continuing to kind of check in on that and iterate on it over the course of the year, recognizing that whatever they are doing to support their personal wellness is going to be really critical to them being at their professional best. So we started using this in the School of Medicine and have now actually been able to use it also with some of our um, health sciences graduate students, uh, also um, in the provider self-care course, as well as uh, some of our faculty workshops and our um, actually in the process of discussing having this rolled out as part of the annual review for residents and faculty, and perhaps also for staff. So it's been really well-received, and and I think the feedback that we've gotten the most has been that it feels to individuals who've completed it as though they've had an opportunity to really think intentionally about their wellness and the things that are important to them, and then they kind of walk away with something that's actionable.
1: Right, and making that part of the annual review process will assure that everyone takes that time? Because sometimes that's the hardest part, is just setting aside time to do something like the wrap worksheet, even though it doesn't take that long. Um, unfortunately, our priorities sometimes uh, are very competing.
2: Absolutely. We, we can so often just get lost in the day-to-day. And, and we recognize that in order for someone to be able to complete this in the way that's most meaningful for them, most likely they're going to need for to have some sense of privacy if that's something that they need. Uh, so what we have done is to say, we want you to complete this. Um, here are folks that you can speak to, mentors, peers, um, if you're looking for some support. Uh, we are going to have the environment to kind of discuss and review, but you're also welcome to keep to yourself anything that you'd like. Um, but this is also, I think, getting back to that question of a culture of wellness where what we're doing by setting this time aside and making this uh, a part of a core experience uh, is to say that we really recognize that this is important and we, we value your personal wellness as well as just your professional performance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You are are definitely setting that as a priority for everyone here. Um, and I personally appreciate that, but I think the average person will also appreciate it once they get into it and they realize how h- helpful it is for them
2: yeah I think that's really true it, it's been interesting the, the way that this is received I think varies so widely depending on the audience that I'm speaking to <laughs> um, mm. uh, I find that the students really get this right away oh. um, a lot of the faculty and um, I find uh, we we got a sort of blank face at first (laughs) um, because these are not really topics, unfortunately, that much of our faculty, particularly our more senior faculty, are used to discussing. Um, Right. However, um, once we actually really get into the wrap, um, and everyone is... kind of sitting there completing their goals and, and taking stock and doing their assessment, um, we end up having really robust conversations following, um, even with folks who weren't really necessarily so sure to begin with. Uh, I think because it is concrete and it is it is allowing you the opportunity to take something actionable away. Um, and as you say, you know, most of us just go about our day-to-day lives, and particularly those of us who have been on long educational paths, mm-hmm. um, usually there isn't really a question of you know, what are our goals outside of career goals or educational goals. Um, and so this is really an opportunity for many folks to be really intentional, perhaps perhaps for the first time or first time in a while, about what they are doing in terms of their own personal wellness. And, and it's amazing the conversations really take off from that point
0: because the the number of people in the health professions who burn out burn so brightly is sort of stunning from when patients learn about that. Uh, yeah, w- without question. Uh,
2: so this is, we know a a serious epidemic among healthcare professionals now. Uh, and, and I would venture to say, again, that I, I think we need to use a broad definition of healthcare professionals. so perhaps not necessarily directly providers, but I think also a lot of our clinical staff, um, we certainly see that uh, high stress and burnout is a problem there as well. Um, and so I, I do think that um, many patients are can be very surprised when they hear this, Um However, uh, the the truth is that a a provider who is burned out or a healthcare professional of any kind who is burned out, um, we know that not only is that a problem for that individual and for their personal life, which is clearly something of great importance and that we are committed to addressing at the GOL Center, But we also know that even though it may be a surprise to our patients, um, patients uh, in any sort of healthcare environment these days are certainly experiencing the results of burned out Mm -hmm. uh, healthcare professionals. Uh, We know that professionals, healthcare professionals who are burned out um, are are less, they are perceived by patients as being less empathic. Um, They are more prone to kind of missing details, perhaps making medical errors um their patients tend to not be as adherent to the treatment plans that they develop um, and patients tend to have poorer health outcomes uh, in that environment. Uh, so we know that there are very real implications for patient care and across the United States um, provider burnout, healthcare professional burnout generally is a very real problem. Um, we know that whether we are in an academic setting or a private practice or a more commercial setting, um, the rates of provider burnout run right around 30%. Hmm. So it's substantial. Yeah.
1: very substantial uh, and, and
2: highly. <laughs> uh, so it's something that we need to address. And, and, um, and although the evidence here is not as strong, it's, very strongly my impression anecdotally that this is not limited just directly to providers, but to folks working in healthcare
0: industry generally. So how do you get these folks to practice self-care, especially the physicians? Yeah. So I,
2: I, think, I think the approach varies for everyone. Um, but so one of the things that we know is really important is uh, to provide a variety of resources and tools. Um, not everyone is going to be into yoga. And meditation,
1: and that is fine. <laughs> true.
2: Um, so, you know, I happen to enjoy yoga and meditation,
1: but I do as um, well. So, we're <laughs> clearly a biased sample.
2: <laughs> we, we we are a little bit, I think, um, <laughs> but but important to recognize that not everyone is into that, and not everyone is even going to be you know, giving it an opportunity. Uh, so we need to make sure that we have a really wide variety of ways that people can engage. Um, and that allows an individual to kind of choose the path that is right for them. Um, and that that is a really important piece. Um, another piece that's really important is making sure that not only are we providing the resources, but that there is actually structurally an opportunity um, for individuals to engage with those tools and resources. Uh, so we can you know, I, I remember being an intern and getting an orientation talk about how important sleep was, and that we really needed to make sure that we weren't sleep deprived. <laughs> um, and thinking to myself, okay, well, that sounds great, and I appreciate that sleep is important, but you know, if I'm working thirty-hour shifts, what am I supposed to be doing about
1: that? Right. They weren't really setting the culture for that.
2: Exactly, right. So and so that's part of the reason why um, what we're looking at with the G Well Center is also being able to not only provide those resources resources and tools for individual use, but also to really be able to look at kind of structural issues um, and questions of leadership and culture. Um, so we do have as part of the wellness advisory board a working group that is um, starting to do an evaluation of the policies and guidelines across the institution. And uh, to create a uh, evidence-based best practices toolkit uh, for leadership, um, starting with anyone who has any sort of supervisory role. Uh, We know that one of the things that is the biggest predictor of burnout in employees is the leadership style of their management and and, and of their direct supervisor. Um, So uh, very often, uh, if a supervisor is able to provide some flexibility wherever possible, instead of being... Uh, Instead of having kind of a rigid one-size-fits-all approach, um, that kind of flexibility can make a really big difference. The opportunity for someone to maybe work from home when they don't need to be physically present, um, having flexible hours, um, things of that kind can make a really big difference in allowing people to structure their lives in such a way that they have the opportunity to engage in some of the wellness um, goals and practices they have identified as being important for them.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about this at the Sung Symposium. Uh, you are one of our speakers. It's April 24th. Mark your calendar now. Um, and <laughs> My calendar is just- marked. Excellent. I bet it is. Um, Just as a a preview, so people can kind of get to know you a little bit better. um, We know that you're a board certified in preventative medicine and lifestyle medicine, and you like to focus on holistic care with patient empowerment. So how did you get to that point? Where did your how did your journey take you there?
2: Well, uh, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a story. I'll try to make it relatively brief. (laughs) Um, so my, my professional journey has not been a direct one. Um, I did not start out as a pre-med in college saying that I wanted to be, you know, chief wellness officer (laughs) when I grew up. Um, it wasn't a thing that existed even actually until a few years ago, I think. Um, so uh, where I did start out uh, from a young age was being really focused on prevention. Uh, I have strong family history of various different um, non-communicable conditions such as heart disease uh, on both sides of my family. Um, and from a young age that made a big impact on me, um, my father had a pretty serious MI when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, it led to a lot of changes in the way that we did things in our family um, and led to a lot of changes in me personally. So I, I think from a young age, I had a focus on um, kind of dietary habits. I went vegetarian in sixth grade, um, originally for um, ethical issues. I think PETA came in and gave us a presentation, <laughs> um, which uh, really had an impact on me, but um that was uh, pretty quickly followed by health concerns. Um, you know, I was running track. Um, I began meditating at a young age. I think someone left a copy of the Tao Te Ching laying around my parents' house that I picked up. Um, so these were things that were kind of part of me from a young age. Um, but I think maybe just a reflection of the times in which um, I was growing up and growing, going through training. Um, although that preventive care was always a real focus of mine and for my own self-care, but also um, when I was in college, I was uh, running an organization where we were doing a lot of homeless outreach. And and I think um, if ever there is a population that will convince you that um, being able to really address root causes of troubles and mm. being able to address kind of systematic problems is really critical, um, that's probably a population that will, that will bring you around on that. Um, so preventive care, public health were areas of importance to me, uh, for a long time. But, uh, when I was in medical school, um, you know, the fact that I ran was great. Everyone was down with that. <laughs> the, the fact that I was vegetarian was, you know, maybe a little bit unusual, but mm. fine. Okay. Um, meditation is something that you wouldn't even talk about. Um, right. And, uh, and it's amazing to realize how much that's changed. But, uh, but at that time, that and now was there's, really there are
1: apps for that. Yes,
2: <laughs> there are apps for that. And there are, we, we have, um, at the school of medicine at GW, um, a medical student interest group that is the GW society of mindfulness. Um, I mean, that would be unheard of when I was going through medical school. Um, so and that's a fantastic change. Um, but all of which is to say that, um, it hadn't really occurred to me that, um, preventive medicine was even a thing for me to pursue. Um, I was really interested in, uh, working abroad. I was doing a lot of that at the time, a lot of my family's abroad and, uh, I ended up really loving surgery. Um, one way or another, I ended up in ophthalmology and, um, as a uh, fourth-year resident in ophthalmology, so I was in my final year, um, I was doing something that I think a lot of us do that will probably sound familiar to folks listening, which was um, sort of intentionally, consciously putting my self-care on hold Um for a period of a few months. And it's kind of that, oh, well, you know, this is going to be happening now and it's just a few months. And then at the end of that time, I'll be able to kind of pick up my health again, sort of mentality. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, you know, that starts early. We start with, okay, well, you know, it's Thursday night and all my friends are going out, but I have class Friday mornings. So. <laughs> <laughs> so just for tonight, I'm going to go home and be good. And then I'll go to class tomorrow morning. Um, or, oh, you know, it's just for this weekend, I'm not going to do anything because I'm studying for finals or, you know, this month, is the month that I'm studying for the MCAT or whatever it is. It starts early. Um, And then we get into training and it's, well, this is going to be particularly rough rotation. And so we'll kind of just suck it up and get through it. Um, And then I'll go back to kind of, you know, eating normally and going to the gym and that sort of thing. Um, And so that's kind of where I was, you know, as a surgical senior, um, I was taking backup call for a week at a time, but that also meant that I was actually taking primary call for a week at a time for some of the locations where, um, where our uh, junior residents did not, and, um, you know, applying for fellowships and developing a program that I was going to be working on um, in northern Iraq where I'd done some of my thesis work for my MPH and kind of, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of things. And um, and kind of made a decision that I didn't have time to, you know, really sleep more than a few hours. Um, meals, mm. certainly not. Um, you know, I was kind of grabbing whatever I could at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, Pretty common. Working, absolutely. Um and, and this probably was, unhealthy. Uh, well, so particularly unhealthy because I was in Wisconsin and I was vegetarian. Oh yes. <laughs> and so that meant like mac and cheese, cream of broccoli, <laughs> pizza. Um not not fantastic. And that was when I got to have a meal. Um and um and, you know, working out was certainly not happening. And, um, and so all of those things combined, um, kind of at the end of those few months, um, I went for a little run um, and uh, ended up having um, my uh, patella, my kneecap dislocate. Oh. Um, yeah. So that's not awesome. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, a six-week um, injury usually. Um, But, you know, I was in my final year of residency and I continued to take call on crutches and keep a full schedule and, you know, going into the OR operating with like a bag of ice strapped to my knee and um, doing all of these things that were um, really just pushing through instead of actually addressing what my body needed um, because that was the culture and that was what uh, Mm -hmm. I think rightly I thought was expected of me. And, uh, what ended up happening was that, um, it didn't get better and it kept getting worse. And I started developing all these strange symptoms that, um, the physician I was seeing couldn't really explain, (laughs) um, like huge pitting edema and, um, really, really intense pain that was much worse than it happened when it first started and really strange things. Um, and the edema was so huge to the point that, um, in ophthalmology, we take our shoes off when operating and, um, My the fellow that I was working with on one case, um, actually, he was so alarmed that he made me go to the emergency room because he thought that I had a DBT.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow.
2: Mm. So it it was significant. We didn't really know what was happening. um, And I kind of just kept going on it. And uh, it was about three months before I saw someone new who gave me a diagnosis that this was a sympathetic nerve dystrophy. And at that point, um, what I was told was that they weren't sure I was going to be able to walk again. Oh um, but that I was going to take some pretty intensive physical therapy and a lot of nerve blocks and kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it. And uh, so that ended up meaning that I I wasn't – for a period of time, I was trying to be both a patient and a resident, and it didn't really work. Um, and what it ended up meaning was that I needed to take time to really focus on getting better. And uh, so we we did the kitchen sink. <laughs> And um but I also one of the things that I was became aware of and something that became really clear in the reading that I did at that time because it wasn't really a condition I was familiar with, was that um as a profession, um we in medicine actually still don't really understand an awful lot about how sympathetic nerve dystrophies work and um how to address them, which is why we were taking the kitchen sink approach. Mm. And and I ended up saying to myself, you know what, I I can see that part of what went wrong here (laughs) was that I really, I've had all these aspects of my life and my self-care that I've been engaging with from such a young age, and I kind of allowed all of that to go out the window. Mm -hmm. And so um, I made a big point of getting back into all the things that I knew were working for me. Um, but then on top of that, really diving deeper and doing a lot of research into, you know, what does an anti-inflammatory lifestyle look like? What does an anti-inflammatory diet look like? What is the actual evidence here that's going to be useful? Um, so that I'm not just kind of going off of someone's blog, but really understanding, um, what is the kind of pathophysiology, the biology behind these approaches that I'm taking. And, um, and I have to say that it was a process, um, process. But I was able to get better. Um, and that was after, after the nerve blocks had stopped working. Um, I, I really believe that this was a huge part of what made it possible for me to recover um, to the point that a few years ago, I was able to start um, very slowly and pathetically <laughs> to start running again.
1: Um, well, that's great. And nice. so,
2: yes, uh, I was very excited. <laughs> Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. You'd be able to walk briskly past me. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Um, (laughs) Um, But so this, uh, I think, really kind of brought me back to – the roots of what had been a really important approach to my own health, but also to um, patient health for a really long time. Um, when I was in ophthalmology, my intention was to be focusing on prevention. So I was applying in glaucoma and ocular epidemiology and working on kind of rapid assessments of avoidable blindness. Um, and so this brought me to the opportunity to say, you know, I I really think that this is something that is critical. <laughs> Uh, in healthcare, that is so frequently overlooked and really missing, um, both in the care that we provide to our patients, but also in the way that we really think about the culture of working in healthcare. Um, and so at that point, um, it made perfect sense for my next step to be to go into um, a second residency in preventive medicine. Um, at that point, I already had my MPH. Um, And so that allowed me an opportunity that's usually part of a preventive medicine training program. Um, Since I already had that, it allowed me the opportunity to kind of create a little bit more of a curriculum for myself. Uh, So I knew that these aspects of a healthful lifestyle were really important to what I wanted to be doing with my future career. And at that time, there wasn't such a thing as a lifestyle medicine uh, residency program or training track. Uh, But I was able to kind of create one for myself. Um, and so that um, that led me to a place of telling my program director that I was interested in uh, starting a um, a resident run clinic where we would uh, take this kind of approach with our patients. Um, and she kind of said to me, "Okay, sure, whatever that sounds fine. <laughs> um, and um, and so I, I was able to start doing that as a resident. and um, and when I was looking to um, institutions where I might be able to, Continue this as faculty, um, I found the opportunity to do that here at GW um, and, and start our program here in lifestyle medicine, which has um, now come so far that it is um, actually a board certified specialty.
1: Well, I think that is the perfect ending. Um, you've given us a lot to think on, and it's an excellent teaser for your talk for the Sung Symposium, which I hope everyone will tune into remotely or uh, come to DC and attend in person, hopefully. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Kaylin. Really enjoyed it. It was really my pleasure. Uh, thank you both so much
2: for inviting me, and I'm also looking forward to the Sung Symposium in April.
0: This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, and I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for listening. listening.